0: Welcome to today's episode of Purpose to Performance. And my guest today is Kieran Coltman. And Kieran's a specialist in virtual leadership coaching and development. Originally from Ireland, Kieran's now living in Cambodia. He studied human resources and did in industrial relations at the National College of Ireland. And he's a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. An ICF professionally certified coach, master facilitator of the Leadership Challenge, with additional qualifications as a leadership and performance coach. His early career in human resources, having been HR Director at British Telecom and Sonofi Aventis. He stepped into full-time leadership coaching in 2013, and now works independently with a number of leading global organizations, including performance consultants, right management, Quest Leadership, and Move One. So welcome, Kieran. Thank you very much indeed. Very nice to be here. Yeah, so I'll start with the obvious question: how, how did an Irishman end up in Cambodia?
1: Well, it certainly it certainly is the obvious question that I get asked a lot when I do <laughs> workshops. Um, good question. So, I, I it's probably it's it's all connected with my kind of coaching leadership journey, you could call it. So, I'll, I'll give you the whole story. Uh, I was coming up to the age of fifty, uh, which was eight years ago, and. Um, at that point, I made a decision. I didn't want to continue to work as a HR director um, in the corporate world. I mean, much as I got a lot out of it in terms of personal development, I felt that um, the more I went up in the organization to the senior role, the less I was connected with really impacting on leaders, on, on leadership and on leaders actually having a direct impact on making workplaces better. I felt that, that you can have a certain influence as a HR director, but really, I wanted to kind of, you know, I suppose have more sense of purpose in the work that I was doing uh, by actually directly impacting the leader, who then directly impacts the people around them in different organisations. So I decided to retrain as a coach, and I went. I was in Spain at the time, and I went to London to do that with performance consultants. And then I also was looking at, you know, uh, what leadership framework will I use? I've been working in HR for 20 plus years and i had done a lot of management development programs but did I have a really good research-based leadership program that I felt I could use I didn't think I had so I did my research and I found the leadership challenge so uh, I I went off and I did the leadership challenge program and then eventually unexpectedly decided to do the mastership program Um, and then I, I was in Spain as I said at the time and I was thinking I kind of feel like I need an adventure. I'd like to do something different in a different part of the world. I lived in Europe all my life. I'd worked in Dublin for most of it, 30 years, until I'd gone to Paris to work for Sanofi. So I said to myself, where in the world would you go? And I'd been reading this book, uh, The 4-Hour Work Week" by Tim Ferriss. And he kind of inspired me in the sense that he talks about, you know, running a business by living in a low-cost economy and earning in a high-cost economy. and I thought that was an interesting idea. And Plus, then I thought to myself, well, where where in the world would be, what would be the list of low-cost economies that maybe I would consider living in? And so I got the list out and I decided, uh, I looked at Southeast Asia and I'd been to Cambodia in 2004 and I thought, well, this is really interesting because I was reading about the, the economic data about Cambodia was so good the seven to eight percent GDP growth for many years the country had really taken off and I was thinking that's very interesting plus it's besides Singapore, Australia, Thailand etc. So um, it got onto the short list of places I could possibly live and uh, so I came on a kind of a research trip in 2014 to check it out and see what, what was going on in Cambodia and it was really um, incredible it had really boomed since I'd uh, you know, been there in 2004. And even now, I've been here six years, it's just been booming the whole period. Even with COVID, it doesn't seem to stop. So I thought, let's give it a go. And went to Phnom Penh first of all, for a few months. Really liked it. And then eventually moved up here to Siem Reap near the Angkor Wat temples. And um, most important thing for my work now, well, the most important thing before COVID was being near an airport. That was internationally connected, which Siem Reap is, and the second thing was good internet connection. And here in Siem Reap, we have amazing internet because it's all brand new fiber optic network. And the airport was pretty good until COVID happened, but I'm glad to say it's starting to reopen again now. And we're having international flights coming back from December this year. So I so I tried give it a go, and I haven't I didn't really have that many clients in Cambodia up till three years ago. Um, and i was doing i was flying you know to australia different parts of asia china doing workshops etc and uh, and now that's all just been converted to online and to doing it say on zoom or teams and you know with all the different versions of covid that are going around i'm not sure that it's going to go back in a hurry to being in person i think there's too many risks involved plus organisations are re- realising they save a lot of money by not sending people to a hub somewhere,
0: so that's why that's how I ended up in Cambodia. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's of all the tragic consequences of COVID, I think it has transformed certainly, you know, coaching, you know, what you do, what I do, uh, and the ability to do it from from anywhere. Um, but yeah also it's had a, a really profound impact and as you say it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in terms of what the, the the long-term change what the sustained change is in terms of of business travel office locations remote locations so yeah
1: exactly I mean I, I think that look as a coach we know that you can coach using any medium once you can have a conversation with somebody right and in fact, many respects, I prefer audio coaching because you get less distracted by the visual, by actually having to look at a screen and you can think better. Uh, and I did a lot of audio coaching before uh, COVID. But I think the case has now been made in many different spheres of business that we can do these things virtually. But actually, I think the case has really been made for coaching, that you don't need to be somewhere to do it. I have a very good friend, actually, he coached me before I, I started to to do my coaching, at uh, my, my coaching course, uh, who is a coach for top CEOs in Silicon Valley and elsewhere in the US. And he spent his week on a plane. You know, they would pay for him to come and sit beside him in their office because they were top of the tree. And, um, you know, that was that was his life. He, was, he spent his life on a plane and it all stopped. And now he's continuing to do his work and he's not on a plane at all. And I should
0: imagine it. it's it's totally transformed his productivity and the impact he can make
1: okay. because is,
0: instead of having five appointments a week, you know, if he wants, he can have twenty-five. Yeah, exactly,
1: exactly. Yeah. You can do that. You don't have to travel. You don't need to go through the airport experience. And yeah, and you're much more, It's much more flexible. You can work when you want, how you want, etc.
0: Yeah, interesting. Anyway, I was going to jump sort of straight in uh, about yeah. about leadership because I think you know that that's it's really the focus of your your coaching. Um, you know, and, and obviously you know you started out in business in in the in the eighties and nineties, and you know you've been you've been developing leaders for the last ten years. What what's changed?
1: Well, um, when I look back to nineteen eighty one was when I started working in a, a business which was which is now Viva it was Norwich Union then. I mean, it was a very traditional workplace. In fact, I'm actually coaching somebody who's just left the the current version of that business. And it's still apparently quite a traditional business. But back in 1981, I can tell you from my own experience, it was a tell culture. You just tell people what to do. Here's a job. Go and do it. Check it. Manager checks it. Okay, give you another job. You weren't expected to give your opinion, your views on anything you know, um, except maybe when you became a manager yourself and maybe people started to take you in inverted commerce seriously. But people didn't feel that somebody working in a, in a clerk position or, a, you know, some lowly position would have be able to make any contribution to the, the business. And I think that's, that's one of the major revolutions in our time. And I think it really hit me when I left that business and I moved into Ireland's first internet company as a, a HR manager, and um, this company had been bought by the Irish Postal Service and had bought the internet company. And you can you can imagine two hugely different cultures, one traditional, the post service, and the other one, email and internet. It was the first company in, in Ireland to deliver you know, email addresses, et cetera. It couldn't have been more different, but the postal service thought, oh, this is the future of technology and post, so we've got to buy it. And uh, actually, it was a good acquisition because I mean, they sold it several, a few years later for a lot of money. But... The, um, the, 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 what I noticed going into that business, having been in this kind of stuffy world of insurance for many years, was young people didn't want, to be told what to, didn't want to be told what to do. Give me a project, tell me what you want, and I will then work the A to the Z. I don't want to be told how to go from A to Z. Um, and it was really, it was a real eye opener for me, you know, oh, suddenly it's like the new generation is not wanting to be told anymore. They actually want you to just ask them questions and then, then get up, they get on with it. So I think that's been the major revolution. And if I think about um, coaching as becoming part of that leadership change, the whole premise of coaching is that you are asking people questions because you believe they can solve the problem themselves, right? So, if you bring that into the leadership context, then you believe that people around you when you're working in business are resourceful and full of potential and can achieve lots of great things. So that's that initially was when when um, companies like performance consultants started, they were teaching people how to be coaches, mostly to be professional coaches. Now, coach training businesses, the biggest part of their job is teaching people in business how to be coaches. So it's been recognized that it's a much more effective, higher performing way of leading is to coach people rather than just tell them what to do. And I think part of that revolution has also been fueled by Silicon Valley, because companies like Facebook and Google, etc, are full of these young people that I used to work with, the type of people I used to work with in Ireland online, and it's the same thing, going, it, we, we won't, you know, what was it, is it not Bill Gates, it was the head of Apple said, the one who died, he said, you know, I pay people to get them to, to do things, I don't, oh, I can't exactly remember the quote was now, do you remember the one I'm talking about? He said, um, Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs, it was the quotation about, um, oh yes, I pay people to get them to tell me what to do. Right. And that's the point. You ask the questions, you you give the challenges, you invite people to solve the problem so that they, as CEO or leader, you can be told what the right thing is to do. Right? It's not the other way around.
0: Uh, So what are the catalysts behind that change? You know, so it's a fundamental shift.
1: Well, I I think the catalyst is is actually people, young people have got fed up. They don't want to be told what to do. That's it. I mean, it's just, it, we've we, we've come through an era, I mean, certainly in the 90s and into the new century, where people are going, I want freedom. I want to be empowered. I want to feel like I've got control over my day-to-day. I don't want to feel like somebody's sitting on my shoulder telling me what to do all the time, right? Who mm. wants that? I, I mean, who from the age of 18, do you want somebody sitting on your shoulder telling you what, you, what you're supposed to do? No. So, you know, you can't have, well, you could say ultimate freedom working in a business, but you can certainly give people a lot of freedom to be creative, to come up with ideas, to solve problems. And that's what coaching, I mean, coaching and leadership for me in the new era are totally connected. You cannot have a performing culture without having coaching as part of it.
0: So in, in that context, then, what, what, what makes a great leader today? Um, somebody who listens. Uh,
1: somebody who really is present. Uh, somebody, uh, I, I love the word Dan Daniel Goldman, the professor in Harvard University, says when you're with a great leader, you feel felt. They, un- you, they understand you. They understand what drives you, they understand what motivates you. Um, they understand what you're trying to achieve. They are there to support their, your development. That's what makes a great leader today. And and it's very interesting because, you know, I did the Leadership Challenge, uh, which was based on work started in the early 80s by uh, Jim Cousy's and Barry Posner. And when they were working together in Santa Clara University, they just asked leaders a very simple question. When you're being really successful as a leader, what are you actually doing? What are the behaviors you're exhibiting when you're really being successful? And it was through interviewing 5,000 people and doing the research on that, that they found 30 key competencies, which is really the basis of the leadership challenge, that no matter what culture you're in, what type of organization you're in, that it will really deliver results and create a high-performing, empowered uh, environment. So what's interesting is, if you look at those behaviors, they're all about listening, they're all about enabling, they're all about challenging but really understanding the people around you and really connecting because they say, look, leadership is a relationship. It's not, Oh, I've got into the office and my door says HR director. Now I'm the boss, right? And that is not the way people respond. They respond to having a good relationship with a manager. We know from research that the two reasons that people leave organizations are their managers and the development, whether they, they get developed or not. They're the two principal reasons. And, um, If you create the right culture, the right environment, people will grow and develop, you know, like you put water on a flower and fertilizer, they'll grow and develop. Um, And uh, you will have a much happier performing workforce. I mean, the world of engagement studies is all about that. Uh, The the. there's another area now which is really popular, which I can't remember the name of quite at the moment. But it's, it's really all about engagement, how we engage with the people around you. You cannot no longer treat people uh, the way they were treated in 1960, you know, mm. uh, or in, even in
0: 1980. Yeah. And w- what strikes me is, or, or, or the question that, that comes into my mind, is from an educational point of view, have we really taken this on board you know so you know now it's not about knowledge and expertise as you said because you know post digitalization that in, the information age it's always available at your fingertips so it is now much more about those softer things of, of communication,ship and relationship and everything else you know is that reflected in how we're actually educating and developing our people coming into the workforce or are we having to still retrofit those skills through coaching okay. in, in terms of development
1: I think it rather depends on on the school you went to, the university you went to, the experience you've had in other workforces or in other workplaces. I know, for instance, if you take the leadership challenge, it's taught in dozens of universities in the US because they recognize that people should have good leadership skills before they go out into the world. But it kind of depends on how how forward-thinking your education establishments are. And then it's down to, Businesses, individual businesses, you know, what what is the culture like in each individual business? Here, I mean, in Cambodia, I've been coaching leaders in a multinational company for the last three years. Uh, I've coached about 40 plus people. And most of them came from very traditional Cambodian family, usually family businesses. And they were very, very oppressive, uh, very tell culture, very unpleasant places to work. Suddenly they now they live in so they're now working in a multinational that is very very progressive and they they they're just lit up they're so they're performing enjoying like you know tim galway the famous american coach said it's about ple performance learning and enjoyment these three elements if you are learning and you are enjoying yourself you will perform i mean he was doing this work 20 years ago and he found that in the us business mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, how, how important is, is context for leadership? You know, if you, if you have a good leader in, in one company uh, and, you, yeah. and you take them out and you, you, you put them in another, are they going to succeed if it's a different sector, a different technology, different team, different culture? I don't think there's a, a kind of a single answer to that question, but we do know
1: from the work of Kuzis of and Posner in the Leadership Challenge uh, they have found that the behaviors are not dependent on any demographic at all. It makes no difference with the demographic. If you use these behaviors, they will work anywhere. The issue of course is how you can get like a critical mass of these behaviors. It's the same with coaching, by the way. you know if you have a 100,000 people organization, global organization, and you do three coaching courses for 30 managers. Well, how is that going to change? Or sorry, how is that going to evolve the culture? It's not, right? You have to actually have a substantial investment. Plus, it has to come from not only from people learning how to coach, but leaders also coaching. So it's going to be like a top and coming from the top and coming from the bottom. you have got to have both approaches. So, you know, you, you you need to have critical mass. People need to understand what these thing behaviors are um, in order to, to evolve the culture, like uh, Ed Shine, who's written this great book uh, called Humble Inquiry. Um, and in fact, he's now done a new version with his son, because I think his son has taken over the business. He, he's MIT Sloan, and he has been kind of well known in the world of HR as being a sort of an organizational development guru. And I, sp- I saw him speak a few years ago in the US. He said, you can't change a culture. You have to evolve a culture. It's a step by step process. Just as an individual learns step by step how to coach and starts implementing it in their day, so too you have to step by step introduce whatever you think the right behaviours are to evolve the culture. So it's not—it's not an easy. Particularly for a large organisation, it is not an easy thing to do, and it can't happen overnight. It's step by step.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean certainly from personal experience, you know, I've I've found organisations where you know I. I I was very successful it was very easy to to slip in and perform and, and really had a lot of value and then I've had other organisations where I've just found it very very difficult and and you know still utilizing all all, all the skills that I've developed over the years you know from my training and, and development and being coached yeah in some cultures if if as you say if if it's not right at the top or you know it hasn't pervaded through the organisation it 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 prevents a real challenge it does and look it's like when, when any
1: professional coach coaches, the first thing we have to do is raise someone's awareness. We can raise awareness from what we see when we interact with the individual, or maybe they have a 360, which tells them you know, what other people think about their leadership. So you need to be able to raise awareness. If people are not, if their awareness isn't raised to a sufficient degree that they need to make a change, then why would they want to make a change? They're in the comfort zone. Everything's <laughs> cool and dandy, right? Right. So it is down to, you know, is there a good reason to make this shift? And I can tell you the good reason. The good reason is that people will perform better if they're working in the right culture. People will enjoy themselves more. People will feel more empowered and more connected if they're in the right environment. So I would say probably at the end of the day, it's down to what's the competition doing? Is the competition creating a great workplace? Uh, Are we creating a great workplace? Have we anything to be concerned about? What do we do about it?
0: Yeah, and I, I think you know the other dimension that I think is becoming particularly acute, certainly you know here in uh, in Europe at the moment, is can you recruit the right talent and can you retain the right talent? Because as you say, you know the the mindset of of the millennials and Gen Z and everything else is we're not going to put up with something that you know is, isn't right, that isn't inspiring us, that isn't exciting us, that we're not enjoying. You know they they vote they with their feet and. You know, the, the, there is a skill shortage now and, and there are businesses, again, certainly post-Brexit, just as a very localised example, you know, that, that has uh, put some constraints on the availability of of talent coming in. Um, so, yeah, I think there is pressure on leaders now to to make sure that they're having the right environment. Otherwise, they're just not going to get access to the talent they need to, to develop value. Yeah, exactly.
1: And, and I mean, there is a market element to this. I mean, if you... If you look at, it depends on what market sector you're in, who your competitors are, all that kind of stuff. But If you're talking about global multinationals, you don't have a choice right now. You just have to go this way in my opinion.
0: Yeah, and the other thing that strikes me that has changed significantly as a consequence, of, you know, we're sort of comparing the uh, how businesses worked in the 80s and 90s and the hierarchical, it, it's very much about teams now. So do, do you do a, a, a lot of work in leadership in teams or, or, or is it mainly one-to-one?
1: Um, I do some teamwork, uh, but it's mostly one-to-ones. Um, and, I, you know, I, I've, do, I've done a fair few projects where there have been relationship issues amongst team members, things that need to be put on the table. And I think as a coach, you facilitate that those conversations. You help people say what they really need to say, put things on the table, work it out, and create a new alliance because... Very often what happens in organizations, um, I think of the work of Patrick Lencioni, is that there's certain dysfunctions that creep in over time. And unless you actually, you know, put the fish on the table, we call it, unless you put the fish on the table to try and work it out, then it just continues in the dysfunctional way. We have to create a new relationship. And it is, again, back to that word relationship, you know, leadership is about relationship.
0: Yeah, I just, I just recently read, Patrick, the, the five dysfunctions of the team. Yes. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, it was, it was quite, it resonated with me because I, I remember back to the first time I, I became a, a member of a board of directors. And, and I think it's fair to say that it, it was probably when I joined the most dysfunctional team that uh, you'd ever likely to come across. But we went through this very uh, painful process of uh of coming together as a team and, yeah. and working through those you know those dysfunctions of which we we were able to exhibit all of them quite quite uh quite comfortably um and, and and out the back of it we we were one of the best performing boards within this 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 quite large um multinational group um so the transformation was incredible but you know not only in terms of performance but just the the on a personal level how you felt how it it was horrible in the in in the early days when it wasn't a team but it was fantastic and and inspiring and supporting uh, and energizing and challenging once we turned it around and become a functional team
1: yeah and you see it's that particular point that kind of got me interested in you know I said to you when I left the, the corporate world and I was starting to do coaching and I was thinking, what framework will I use? What would be the right framework to use with leaders? you know It was that reflection that I had uh, going back to the leaders that I'd worked with over the years that I loved working with and the leaders that I absolutely hated working with, that you felt so uncomfortable. And it was thinking about what was it about what they actually did that made me feel uncomfortable? And what was it about the ones that I really liked that made me feel so engaged? Like, it's, it is down to those behaviors. And that's why when I, when I, rather late in my career, found the leadership challenge, I went, "Geez, I wish I'd found this about 20 years ago because this is really what I'm, this is what I'm feeling. This is what I was feeling. And I was feeling positive because of these behaviors. For me, they are um, basic human um, how would I put it? Fundamental human behaviors that work with you know in relationship. And unfortunately, most of our time in organizations is spent on the KPIs, what the target is for this year, what we need to achieve. There isn't enough time spent on how we work together, how we actually work together. you know, understanding each other. We all have different personality preferences. You can analyze that in a million different ways, MBTI, disk, whatever understanding each other's preferences and personality. And then as a team, how do we then work together um, as a team, knowing that we're not the same? Thank goodness, we're, it's diversity, hopefully, that we have a diversity. How do we work together? How do we get the best from that? You know, when I led a large HR team, I used to say to them, I don't have all the answers, right? I have my experience of whatever number of years working in business and HR. But look, you've all got experience And uh, you know, working in business, working in HR, and my job is to facilitate the best answer. Right? We get a problem, we have a project, we work together, we play to our strengths, and we get the best outcome. My job is not to tell you what to do. My job is to facilitate the best outcome for this department.
0: Yeah, it is. I still find it surprising. And again, I you know, I've learned a lot of this as I retrained to to uh, to specialize in coaching. You know, and You do think, well, God, yeah, I wish I'd known this, you know, 20, 30 years ago. But but what what you see day in, day out is this tendency for people, as you say, to go right straight to the finish line, the result, the outcome. And that's where we'll start, which is illogical, you know, and if you start with the okay, so how do we work together? What what's going to what do I need to do to get the best out of you and what do you need to do to get the best out of me? which yep. as we know, you know, start of the coaching conversation is, is, is design the, how we're going to work together. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it, it's, it's quite alien to the, this business idea of, well, let's set the goal, let's set the KPI before we've even talked about who's in the room.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that every business conversation should start with how do we work together? Everything, you know, because, you know, if you have a new project team, it's a new group of people, we need to understand each other, let's get some time understanding each other, understanding what we are, we can bring to the table, and then work out how we do that. Yeah, then we can plunge into the project.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, again, just thinking in terms of the way organisations work, and, you know, post-globalisation, you've now got the, these, these remote teams. So you've got People from different native cultures. I mean, obviously, you know, you've experienced this, you know, working and coaching all around the world. You know, you've got to understand some of those cultural differences. I, I recently, again, another good book, The Culture Map, Erin Bayer. Yes. Yeah. I use that with a group actually. Yeah. I, I was talking to my brother about it. He, he's, um, he's in the pharmaceutical, uh, veterinary pharmaceutical industry and he manages teams of people all around the world running. Uh, yeah they're all scientists, highly highly intelligent people running trials of, of new veterinary veterinary drugs. Um, and yeah you know at first he found it particularly challenging because he'd got a, a Dutch team, a Danish team uh, a, a, a French team and, and then further afield you know in, into the far east and the cultures are very different so the just the manner of communications you know and it, it all comes out in in, in the book yeah, so sorry. he 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 referred to the book went through that culture mapping piece you know, when he realized that he was actually struggling to get some consistent performance of this, this diverse group. Once they'd been through it, suddenly, yeah, the, the, the level and quality of the communication rose significantly and therefore the, the actual speed of, of, of delivering these projects came down very, very, uh, sorry, the speed increased, the time scales came down significantly.
1: Uh, this is the point I'm making um, about raising awareness you know, understanding each other. I use it with the multinational company that I work with here in Cambodia. I use the mirror Mer uh, assessment. And suddenly they because it's a mixed team, you know, some Cambodian people, some international people, and they start to realize, ah, okay, that's why you say that or do it that way. And other people and stuff, other things, you know, it's all about raising awareness. You know, it's really kind of, if you like, educating ourselves, you know, about difference, about diversity, about The fact that we don't, you know, I I mean, the the earliest example for me of that was the MBTI. Oh, okay, So some people don't plan everything. I do. You know, it's like people have a different preference. It's not because they can't do it, don't want to do it. It's just that is not their preference as a person. So when we understand each other more, we can work together better. And that's really when you are doing team coaching. That's what it's about. It's about getting people to understand each other better. And Lencioni's work has really contributed to that. I think he now calls it the, he switched the title around. So it's the five behaviours of the not functional team, but uh, basically the five things you should be doing as a team. And that book is all about really understanding each other. It's about getting to understand each other so that we can work better together.
0: Mm. Fascinating. So um, looking forwards then, you know, mm. In terms of coaching, you know what I see is you know significant growth both on the the demand side in that organizations are recognizing that the absolute need for it but and also on the supply side in terms of you know that there are more coaches coming through. How do you see it playing out uh, I think
1: it's very clear uh, for me there is still a there's kind of like if you think of international hotel chains they have you know they have the the, the cheaper brands at the bottom and the, you work the way all the way. If you look at any of the big international chains, they have like, they cover the breadth of markets. And I f- fully believe that uh, coaching has become democratized or is in the process of being democratized. So you have organizations that specialize in uh, delivering coaching to international organizations easily and simply. Uh, in other words, the fundamental kind of mindset is everyone should have a coach and everyone can have a coach because, first of all, there are so many people, if you look at the ICF, the International Coaching Federation, every year they're making more and more people ACCs. They're qualifying to be coaches. Uh, and on the other side, organizations are realizing, oh, do you know what? You know, everyone should have a coach, really, if they want one. It's like the project I do here for the multinational. The general manager said, I want you to be able to come here every month for three days and coach 15 people about anything. I don't care whether it's work or not, it's up to you, it's up to them what they want to be coached on. So there's a sense that coaching is a good thing for everybody. And so there are certain coaching organizations that are going, okay, we'll make it simple, we'll have a platform, we'll have video profiles. Somebody can come in, look at your video and go, okay, I'm gonna coach, get coached by that person. And they're gonna make it quite freely, you know, quite available to not even just to leaders, but to anyone in the organizations who want it at a reasonable price. So I think we are seeing a sort of a, a layered, you know, just like international hotels, we've got this kind of layered level of coaching. Now, at the end of the day, a coaching is also a relationship. So it really depends on the kind of relationship you have coach and coachee. So I think that you're still going to want to have, if you like, more expensive, high-level coaching because somebody who's a CEO wants to know the person coaching them understands their world. And if you just come out of college and you do a coaching qualification, you you don't have that background. If you're a good coach, you don't need to know anything about the business or anything else. But the reality is, in the eyes of the coachee or the client, you do, you do need to understand their world. So, um, so I feel the the word for me that stands out when I think of the future of coaching is democratization.
0: Coaching for everybody. Mm. Yeah, I've coached quite a few people in in the Google organization. I was talking to them about, you know, uh, how Mm. they find it because these people came to me just independently outside of the organization. And and when I looked into it, you know, yes, you know, you've got your Silicon Valley coaches. Um, I can't remember the the, the guy who did, who was coaching all of them. He he passed away recently. Um, Oh,
1: oh, I was thinking of Goldsmith, but you're, you're thinking of somebody
0: else, yeah. Bill, um, yeah, the guys oh, at yes. Google wrote a book about him. You, you know, wrote the, the book, the, the yeah, that's right. $8 billion coach, or Bill Campbell, yeah. Bill Campbell. That's so, it, he, yeah. Uh, yeah, he was coaching, you know, the boss of, you know, Steve Jobs at Apple and, and then the, the bosses at Google, and, you know, on paper, all these competitive businesses, but they just recognised yeah. he, he, he was such a great coach. But yeah, so, you know, and obviously, he's at the, the top of the tree. And then, you know, they had, you know, very well qualified in-house coaches for the sort of executive layer, the VP. But then beyond that, they just have a global contract with with BetterUp, I think it is. And, and, and that gives availability to to coaching, at, as you say, at an affordable level throughout the organization. And, uh, yeah, I've just recently signed up with Platform Co- CareerPoint. And it has the same sort of proposition. You know, they're selling into the business. But it's, it's very much aimed at, at junior first line management and, and, and it's about career advancement. So how they can add value, more value in the company and advance their careers with, within the company. Um, yeah. so yeah, yeah, it's interesting, but it's definitely, I, I think it, it's with us. And as you say, there's now more training of, of managers within companies so that, you know, they're, they're just adopting a more coaching style to, to their leadership day in, day out. Absolutely. And you say that, that that is transforming the uh, the culture of the organization.
1: Yeah, I mean it it uh, workplaces just have to be empowering workplaces. And uh, they have to engage people, they have to have good relationships otherwise they won't be there's always somewhere else you can go.
0: Well, particularly now when you, you can work for anywhere and
1: yeah it exactly. it, it,
0: it, is, it is a global yeah, it's a global marketplace. And uh, yeah, yeah. I see that with my kids, you know, they they born in, born in the UK and grew up in Europe. And, you know, when you ask them what their identity is, well, I'm just a citizen of the world. And, you know, they're, they're as, as comfortable taking a job in with a company in Australia or, or, or South America as they are in Europe.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, if I think about the last couple of years with COVID, I mean, I've coached loads of people who have never, ever met their teams, ever, all, all virtual.
0: Fascinating. So uh, just in terms of closing, I've got got a few quick fire questions. Um, What would you say are your three most important attributes that have have fueled your success as a coach?
1: Um, The first thing that comes to mind when you say that is uh, what Jim and Barry in the Leadership Challenge say is leaders are the best learners. You realise that there's always something new to learn. No matter how long, how much experience you've had in business, or in anything, there's always something you know new to learn. So I think you have to really be open to new learning. Like when I left the corporate world, I thought I knew everything about people and HR and so forth. And then I did my coaching programs, did the leadership challenge. And I just found out so much more. And as well as that, you learn from your clients and your coaches all the time. Like it's it's a never-ending process, but you have to be open to that. So I think that's the first thing. Second thing is, is to be able to really reflect, self-reflect on your own behaviours, your performance, how you interact with people. With the learning goes reflection. and um, I think that's really important. And I think the third thing for me is, uh, I love that, that title of that book by Susan Jeffers, which is Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And I often say this to my clients. If you, if you want to really get out of your comfort zone, you have to challenge yourself and feel a little bit fear and feel a little bit uncomfortable and go for it. If we stay in our comfort zone, we just stay doing what we're doing. So I think that um, it took, probably took me a long time to really get out of my comfort zone. Um, but I think that that's been the thing which has helped me grow most. I mean, if we look at the leadership challenge, when we ask people for the workshop, what is your personal best leadership experience? It's nearly always something that happened when they were out of their comfort zone. So you've got to feel the fear and do it anyway.
0: Hmm. I always think of you, uh, you know, as well as a great coach and grateful for helping me on my journey. But as somebody who's incredibly well read, so what three books would be? Would you recommend to all aspiring leaders if they only read three books? What 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 would they be?
1: Well, it's probably no surprise to what I'm going to say to you. One is the Leadership Challenge uh, by Kuzis and Posner. Uh, and the second would be Coaching for Performance by Sir John Whitmore. And what would the third one be? I think probably Ed Shines' book, Humble Inquiry, this one, the new version. that I haven't seen the new one, but I've got this one from a few years ago. Because if you're a leader who needs a short, succinct book to convince you that coaching is the way forward, I would recommend Edgar Shines' Humble Inquiry So those three books.
0: Fantastic. What, what excites you most about the
1: future? I, for me, I mean, having worked in multinationals for all my life and seeing the kind of not great leadership that happens, uh, I'm very, very positive and confident that the future of organisations, that organisations are really going to focus on the culture, really going to focus on how we work together. And that ultimately it's going to create workplaces that people like working in. I mean, with my own, if I take my own personal experience, it was always a bit of a roller coaster. Sometimes it was great and sometimes it wasn't great. And it all came down to the leadership at the end of the day. So I feel that the the direction of leadership is in a positive, empowering, engaging direction. And that, you know, the thought leaders like Kuzis and Posner and, uh, you know, Ed Shine and Sir John Whitmore and uh, all the other people that are like, um, well, it's gone out of my head now, but the Harvard University professor I mentioned, or, you know, Emotional and Social Intelligence, those books. Dan Goldman. They, thank you, Dan Goldman. They have transformed our, our attitude to the world of leadership. And that gives me great hope for the future, that things are things are really changing. I mean, if you said to leaders 10 years ago, Have you thought about doing meditation, things like that? They would look at you a little bit oddly. Now, I mean, Dan Goldman wrote a book on it, right? Focus. So it's just it's organizations are becoming more human, and that gives me hope.
0: And and on the flip side of that, biggest concern.
1: Wow! Biggest
0: concern. Um, I
1: guess my biggest concern would be. Leadership in politics. <laughs> I feel that although the world of business is adapting to this new era, I don't feel the world of politics is. And um, like my attitude is in every sense for all leaders, we should be servants of the people we serve. Right? It's it's about developing and growing and serving those people. And I just I, I have a huge concern about how politics is not adopting what, in my opinion, are our proper leadership capabilities.
0: Hmm. I, I'd absolutely echo that. You know, I, I've had this conversation quite frequently recently, you know, who, who are those inspirational global leaders in, 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 the, in the political environment? And it's really difficult to to call them out because it just seems like a sea of mediocrity. And, and I don't know why that is in terms of, you know, there is this prog- you know, very clear progression and, and enlightenment in, in, in the commercial sector, but not in politics. And I, I don't know. Is it because the political world just doesn't attract those, those types of people because it's just not rewarding enough and, uh, or, or, or what it is, but it, it, there does seem to be a, a, a distinct void. There is. And I mean, it seems to
1: be that the one that everyone talks about, and I think rightly, is Jacinda Ardern, you know, the uh, New Zealand prime minister. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I was reading an article, I don't know anything about it, but I was reading about an article about the, the Finnish prime minister yesterday who was accused of being, you know, enjoying herself too much, you know, going out, partying with people. And she said, well, I'm young, you know, that's what we do. And I think that I think we've got politics has got to adapt to the new era as well and unfortunately it, it just doesn't it, it just there's only pockets of it you see the occasional great leader and you think wow that's amazing but yeah too many too many leaders feel like a traditional leader I've got to tell you what to do my role is not to engage you and have a dialogue with you but I need to tell
0: you what to do because I'm the boss mm. I think yeah, p- perhaps it's. Uh, I don't want to lapse too far into a political debate, but it, it's because politics is is set up as as conflictual, you know. So you've always got an opposition party to to uh, yeah. to go against, and it just seems that 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 constant conflict. So you're just defending your position all the time rather than trying to create. But anyway, that's probably yeah, a, you know, a topic for another, that's
1: another day. Another
0: <laughs> Listen, it's been an absolute delight to do, uh, well, this morning for me and, and, and this afternoon for you. So thank you so much. Um, have, a, have a have a great Christmas and uh, let's hope 2020 brings us um, health, prosperity and happiness.
1: Well, I mean, in the words of the song, the only way is up, I think. We have to go one way now after this <laughs> last few years. <laughs> yeah, great stuff.
0: Thank you very much. You're very
1: welcome. Take care. See you soon. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Good luck. Bye